Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this is the third and final part of our Myth and Folklore mini-series. Woo! Woo! <laughs> and do you know what else it is, Emily? Ooh, what? It is our 10th episode. Oh yes, it is! Double digits! I'm very proud of us. I can't believe we've done 10. I know. I can't believe people listen to it. <laughs> I know, and I just, I wanted to like... Just take a little moment. I thought it'd be nice if we like shouted out all of our friends and like our family members who have been like tuning in and giving us feedback, even though Aww. some of the first episodes were buzzy and glitchy and not very good. <laughs> so thank you everyone who stuck with it and like tuned in because you like us. And yeah. I also just wanted to say thank you to you because you have been editing it all and it's your brainchild. So thank you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. I mean, I feel like I have to say thanks to you as well. I couldn't be doing this without you. I'd just be rambling to myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, no one else would hear it if it wasn't for you. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, thanks to everyone who listens. I always get like texts from like my auntie, my sister, and my dad <laughs> with like their thoughts on yeah. the episodes. So it's nice, nice to hear. Also, shout out to Rhiannon because like every episode without fail, she tweets about it, and I just it just forms my wee heart. What a gem! We love you. <laughs> so yeah, now that we've done all the nice heart warm and fuzzy things. <laughs> Let's get started. How has your week been, Emily? My week's been a little bit stressful. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) Well, you know this, but uh, our oven broke. Yeah. On Monday, I think, Mm -hmm. while I was cooking, so that was fun. Good times. And we're not getting another one till the 21st of September, so I'm just, you know, learning how to cook with a microwave, a toaster, and a kettle. (laughs) It's resourceful. It's what it is. <laughs> oh, it's stressful. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad. No. Like, so we're recording this remotely again, and I am normally sad that I'm not there, but I am <laughs> glad that I'm not. There. Yeah, no, it's probably for the best. I've had a lot of toast and cereal. <laughs> we know that I don't do well with hunger. No, but yeah, apart from that, like, apart from work, I've just had quite a chilled, chilled couple of days off. Nice. Doing, you know, embroidery as I do. Because you're actually 85. (laughs) Yep. I'm 89% through my big massive book (laughs) that I've talked about. So I think I'll finish that um, tonight, which is fun. But yeah, that's about all I've done. What have you done with your week? My week has been an absolute bollock, to be honest. (laughs) Nothing like even like exciting to moan about. Just like tech problems, try to work from home and just like Miss Rona ruining all my days But it's fine. I'm determined to be in a good mood in spite of it all. (laughs) Because it's Saturday and we're recording and that's a good thing. So I'm not actually going to bore you with my week. What's your infatuation this week? My infatuation this week is A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes. Mm. And I know I do this all the time, but I'm going to show you the cover. I don't know if you can see, but it's so pretty. It is so pretty. I saw it actually when I was visiting last time. Oh, yeah, so you did. It's just so, like, I love the gold, like, foil effect that's on all of these books. (laughs) It's so pretty. It's so nice. But, yeah, this is the last of my Greek mythology reads. I'm very sad it's come to an end, but this is a good one to end on. 
It's also acclaimed by Madeline Miller, who, as we know, wrote The Song of Achilles and Circe. It's the ones that I talked about in the two previous episodes. Yep. So we know it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, this is interesting because this is, you know, different writer, but mm-hmm. same era of Yep, of and in similar setting as well. We do have some some of those characters are mentioned again. Nice. This came out came out this year, uh, twenty twenty, and it is all about the Battle of Troy, the war that we've already talked about in relation to Achilles and to Odysseus as well. Mm-hmm. The book isn't just a retelling of the war; it's actually got three threads to it. So one thread is about the Trojan women's experience in like the very aftermath of the war. It's directly after the the Greeks trick themselves into the city in the big wooden horse and the men have all been slaughtered because that's what the Greeks did. And this is the story of the women who are left and what happens to them. Nice. But the second thread is about the gods. So specifically, it's about the bickering between all the gods that led to the Battle of Troy. And this thread of the story is told in reverse chronology. So, like, you're gradually finding out the true inciting factor that led to the war. Oh, I love that. I know, it's really cool. And the third thread is all about Calliope, the muse of epic poetry, and a male poet who is writing about the war. They're both annoyed because he wants to write about the heroics of the war, which he associates with the men. And she keeps feeding him, like, inspiration all about the women in the war because she thinks their story is just as important. So, as I'm sure you've worked out, the novel A Thousand Ships is essentially the epic that Calliope is telling the poet to write. That's so dope. Oh my god. (laughs) When you said Calliope, the muse of epic poetry, I was like, I'm I'm so in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's so good. So yeah, this will be quite a a quote-heavy episode for me today, because the chapters are all quite short. They're filled with really awesome, intricate storytelling, and it's quite hard to like just pick out the odd paragraph mm. and I also find I have like less to say about them because I think they all kind of speak for themselves but obviously this is the last episode in this mini series so I thought I'd just go for it and I'm sure we'll find lots to talk about anyway yeah again I'm going to talk about a lot of this book I know I've said this disclaimer before but the stories are not new <laughs> they've been around since ancient Greece so I'm not worried about spoiling them but if you really don't want to know then just skip this But because of the nature of this book, which is essentially a book of short stories, when I talk about things at the end of the book, I'm actually talking about things at the beginning of the story and vice versa. Oh, it's so good. I love that. (laughs) I love that narrative technique. It just never gets old. Yeah. With all that being said, it's still only like a handful of the stories that I'm sharing. There's so many and I'm not actually going to reveal what started the war today. So Mm. you'd still have to read the book to find that one out. Oh, so you can't... This isn't a complete plot giveaway. Not complete plot giveaway, no. Exciting. That was a long introduction, so <laughs> let's get to a quote. So this is one of Calliope's earliest entries in this novel, and she's explaining why she's trying to tell the poet about the women's stories, much to his dismay. Sing muse, the poet says, and this time he sounds quite put out. It's all I can do not to laugh as he shakes his head in disappointment. How does his poem keep going wrong? First he had Creusa, and she filled him with confidence. All the epic themes covered. War, love, sea snakes. He was so happy taking her through the city, searching for Aeneas. 
Did you see how much he enjoyed the descriptions of the fire? I thought he might choke on his epithets. But then she lost her way when he was barely past the proem. I took him straight to the shore so he could see what happened to the women who did escape the fires, and he didn't even notice that the survivors were hardly any better off than poor Curiosa. I'm not sure I could have made it more obvious, but he hasn't understood at all. I'm not offering him the story of one woman during the Trojan War. I'm offering him the story of all women in the war. Well, most of them. I haven't decided about Helen yet, but she gets on my nerves. I'm giving him the chance to see the war from both ends, how it was caused and how its consequences played out. Epic in scale and subject matter. And here he is, whining about Theano, because her part in the story is completed and he'd only just worked out how to describe her. Idiot poet. It's not her story, or Chris's story. It's their story. At least it will be, if he stops complaining and starts composing. What a boss bitch. I love it. I love it. I love how sassy she is. It's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I love the choking in his epithets. Yes. (laughs) And oh, there was a bit before the sea snakes. That made me laugh. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I can imagine it would be quite exhausting to like constantly be preyed on to like yeah. help all these poets out. She's like, oh, for God's sake, another one. <laughs> Do it yourself, man. <laughs> no, but I think it's so funny as well because there's obviously so many memes and jokes about like the male writer mm-hmm. describing women. Yeah, I just feel like that's really got the spirit of that. Yeah, definitely. It's something I like love about Greek mythology, which is that the gods are really like they're personified. Um, so they're presented as like real people and you get their immediate response to things like prayers or sacrifices or like offerings and I just think the sections with Calliope are a really clever way of doing that thing I love which I keep mentioning in this episode which is like reminding us that we're hearing a story. No that's the whole point of like the myths though isn't it it's it's reveling in its own storytelling and like what better way to have that than like writing from the point of view of a muse. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, speaking of things I've mentioned before, we come to Achilles and Patroclus. (laughs) Hey, the boys! (laughs) So this passage is from the perspective of Briseis, who I'm pretty sure I'm still not pronouncing that right, but I apologise. And yeah, she's the trophy that Achilles claims while battling at Troy. And in the Song of Achilles, he only has eyes for Patroclus, but in this text, you do get the impression that he did rape her and Patroclus did as well and you are also reminded that Achilles killed her family in front of her. This book does still mention the eventual bond that she has with Patroclus though which is present in the Song of Achilles and yeah here's the quote from the end of this chapter when she has been returned to Achilles after Agamemnon claimed her for himself. Okay. She was returned to Achilles and therefore to Patroclus, the night before the latter went to battle the Trojans. Patroclus combed her hair for her carefully, almost lovingly. The following evening, when Patroclus's body was returned, stripped of the armour which had once belonged to Achilles, but had been stolen from his friend's still-warm body by Hector, Briseis was waiting for him. While Achilles raged with grief, she washed Patroclus, and laid him out in his finest clothes. She was able to do for this man, her captor and her owner, what she had not been permitted to do for her husband, but she did not weep. She did not weep when Patroclus was placed in his funeral pyre, 
Nor did she weep when Achilles, raging like a mountain lion deprived of its young, returned to battle to avenge his dead friend, although everyone knew that the tide of war had now changed. You could smell it in the air, like a storm coming in from the sea. And she did not weep when Achilles returned from the battlefield with a battered corpse tied to the back of his chariot wheels, having dragged the body of the slain Hector around the walls of the city three times. Achilles left the Trojan hero rotting outside his tent, and Briseis thought of sneaking out in the early hours to wash Hector's body and prepare him for burial or the funeral pyre, but she did not dare. Three nights later, she was listening when the aged king of Troy, a man she had heard of but never seen, came begging Achilles to return his son's body to him. She heard Priam's voice crack as he pleaded for mercy from this most merciless killer, and she was astonished when Achilles softened and let the old man buy back his dead son with a pile of treasure. Having held off for so long, she thought her eyes would not remember what to do. But many days later, standing in front of the funeral pyre of Achilles, cut down in battle by Apollo, they said, she did weep, and she wept for everyone but him. Oh my god. <laughs> Briseis was like, when I read Song of Achilles after you talked about it, Briseis was like maybe my favourite character. Yeah, I love her. I'm quite sad I didn't really I didn't really have the time to talk about her in that episode, but I love her. I think it was good though, because it's like a whole bit of the story that you didn't touch, so like it, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. leaves it really open for people. But that last line, she wept for everyone but him. Mm-hmm. the Briseis from Song of Achilles I really feel her there too yeah 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 definitely yeah oh that makes me so sad yeah I also want to explain why it says Apollo killed Achilles and not Paris because like as we know Paris shoots the arrow but it's often told that Apollo guided his arrow some say Apollo disguised himself as Paris and did it himself but basically even if Paris did shoot the arrow it's because Apollo told him to because the gods like to meddle with things. So that's why it says Apollo. Natch. Gods always meddling. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I think this quote's a good example of the tone which Keynes takes when talking about the atrocities that women face. There is an anger there, but there's also kind of, I feel like, an acceptance that this is still a story. I don't know if that makes much sense, but I'll put it this way. I read The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, which I was going to talk about as part of this series, but I decided not to because I like didn't love it. I thought the like the premise was good, but the tone felt so overwhelmingly angry that I just didn't get on with it. And that's not to say that I don't get annoyed when all these horrible things happen to women, because I do, but I kinda also accept that like these are old, old myths and they're not real. And I think Haynes and Miller as well find ways to write about these injustices that still make you feel for the women, but you kind of understand the way the world works in this setting that leads to them being treated that way. Like, this world isn't our world. It's one where gods walk among mortals, one where gods respond to prayers, like, one where heroes are just given whatever they want. Yeah, it's, it's got parallels, but yeah... If you look at it as an allegory, it would make you really angry. But if you take it at its face value of an actual, like a fantasy book, like a different yes. world, yes. then that's yeah. the parameters of that world. And to be angry about it the whole way through the story would be exhausting. Yeah, and that's how I felt The Silence of the Girls read. 
mm. was that it was just someone who was very angry about all these things that happened to the women, which, you know, r- rightly so, but that's just not enjoyable no. to read. <laughs> I, get, I understand that. But there are actually, like, countless feminist stories in Greek myth, although, obviously, feminism, like, as we know it, didn't exist then. Yeah. But... For example, like we often interpret Medusa as being cursed by Athena for defiling her temple, her curse being like men turn to stone when they see her. Mm. But you can actually view it as Athena gifting Medusa with never having to be raped by another man again. Yeah. And Medusa's head was actually a symbol on women's shelters in ancient Greece, like for that very reason. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. That's so cool. So yeah, I just think like... The problem is that sometimes I think contemporary writers focus on all the horrible things that happened and use it as a kind of shock value rather than just like seeing the interesting story around it. Yeah. And like, I get it, like we all approach stories with our own biases and obviously right now we're going through a huge Me Too movement, so I get why that's at the forefront of of these stories. But I think Haynes has created an interesting story like this passage for example doesn't hide that Brice saw her family slaughtered she's been captured raped who knows what will happen to her when like now that her owners are dead mm-hmm. but there's still a strength to her there's still a part of her who did like Patroclus even though she knows that's probably wrong yeah and yeah I don't know if any of that made sense but I just think there's a way of writing about injustices without being so angry that the story or the complexity of a character disappears it's the complexity that i was gonna say like you still she's so she knows that she shouldn't love these people yeah but she's but she still does and you love them with her yeah like and so it brings up a lot more as a reader when you're given sympathy rather than rage yeah exactly and yeah obviously we said this already but like it's myth we're dealing with it's not real life this is like the parameters of the the world mm-hmm. that we're reading but yeah i want to read another passage which does talk about like the cruelties faced by a woman called oh where's her name god's sake emily <laughs> oh here we go it's Ladamia. and the reason i am reading this is because i think it conveys that tone which we've seen in previous texts a tone which i think is effective where a very brutal act is described quite casually mm. um, because like that's how the gods work. <laughs> so to give some context to this quote, Ledemia's husband was a soldier killed at Troy and she grieves over him for a long time, as you would, obviously, and a blacksmith pities her and builds her a statue of her husband in the hopes it will help her with her grief. Oh, Yeah, it's sweet. Over the days and months which followed, Ladamia did not let her bronze husband out of her sight. She refused to eat or drink unless the statue was present, and she could not be prevailed upon to leave her chamber. Her parents grew worried that their daughter could not continue in such a fashion. The slaves used to talk of her as a tragic figure, but as time passed, they grew scornful of a girl who could not accept her husband's death and marry again. She was young enough to bear any man children. Her parents tried to reason with her, and when that had no effect, they decided to act in her best interests. They waited for her to fall asleep one night and had slaves remove the statue from her room. She awoke to find it on a funeral pyre, burning in place of the body which had never been returned to Greece. 
she issued a cracked howl and hurled herself at the flames. The gods saw this and, unusually, took pity upon her. As she was grabbed by her father and bundled back to her room, locked in for her own safety, the gods sent Hermes to negotiate with the Lord of the Underworld. For the first and last time, Hades agreed to their request. As Ludemia wept her hopeless tears into a sodden pillow, she felt a warm hand on her upper back. Hush, little queen, don't cry, said her husband, and at last she wept no more. They spent a single day together before Hades' patience expired, and Protesilus was returned to the halls of the dead. Unable to live without what she had once lost before, Ladamia tied her bedsheets into a noose and followed him. The gods remarked upon her devotion, and when the people of Phileas built a shrine to their king and queen, the gods smiled upon their prayers. Oh, that's so tragic, but it's so sweet. I know. Hush, little queen, just absolutely broke me. Thanks for yeah, that. Yeah, that's, I know, that's what he called her, like, all the time. It's very sweet. I'm going to start calling you that. <laughs> little queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think to go back to what I was saying earlier, like, this is the tone I enjoy when I'm reading about Greek mythology. Mm. Like, it's based around this woman. It's got a kind of, like, a mystical energy to it when talking about the gods, but it's also so matter of fact. Like it doesn't labour over telling us how cruel this is, no. or how only a woman could be treated like this, or anything like that. Instead, it just kind of presents the facts to us, and that's enough. Yeah, like that bit where it goes, she was young enough to bear any man children. Mm, yeah, like that makes me so much more raging than, and we would have expected her to bear children because that's what the precedent was at that time and isn't that outrageous and blah blah like yeah (laughs) so yeah let's move on and talk about one of my favorite chapters yay and i think you'd really like this one as well this one is titled aphrodite hera athena bang and yep and i'm going to talk about the very end of the chapter but i just wanted to read out the first couple sentences to give you an idea of the tone of this chapter So it starts, the three goddesses would have said they had nothing in common, but each one had the same overwhelming dislike of any social occasion which did not revolve around her, and each had the same incapacity to conceal her disdain. Same. (laughs) Oh, it's such a good chapter. But yeah, a bit of context. These three goddesses are at Thetis's wedding, so Achilles' mother's wedding, and they find a golden apple, um, like little sculpture, at their feet. And they're fighting amongst themselves over who should get to keep it. Because on it is an inscription that says, for the most beautiful. So to stop them squabbling, Zeus transports them to a mountaintop. Where there is a human man there to make the decision for them. Because obviously. <laughs> yeah, because obviously. And this man is Paris. Ah. So the goddesses are all trying to convince Paris to pick them. They all undress so he can see how beautiful they are. And he's like, this does not make my decision any easier. (laughs) (laughs) What a power move, though. Imagine just being with your pals and just getting your calf and being like, nah, look. Yeah. It's funny. It's like Aphrodite, like, undresses. Hera undresses. And Athena's like, are we doing this? All right, okay. And then she undresses (laughs) as well. So yeah, they all undress and they also all offer him something in return for picking them. Right, okay. And I'm just going to read out the last offer made, which is by Aphrodite. 
Even though he was watching her, could not help but stare at her, Paris did not see Aphrodite move. She was suddenly behind him, in front of him, all around him. Her hand stroked his arm, a glancing touch, and he felt like his legs might give way beneath him. He had never wanted something so much in his life as to simply fall to his knees before her and worship her. Her hair, like sun on sand, was wrapped around him and he tasted salt on his lips. You know the apple is mine, she said. Give it to me and I will give you the most beautiful woman in the world. You, he asked, his voice cracking on the word. Not me, she replied. I would destroy you, Paris. You are mortal. Paris wondered if destruction would be such a terrible way to die. I will give you the closest thing to me. Her name is Helen of Sparta. He had a sudden image of a woman of extravagant beauty, flaming yellow hair, white skin, a swan-like neck, and then it was gone. Aphrodite shimmered away, like spume on the surface of the sea. Paris looked down at the solid golden apple nestled between his fingers and thumb. He looked back up at the three goddesses who stood before him, and he knew it had only one rightful owner. As the goddesses returned to Mount Olympus, Athena swore she would never speak to either of them again, especially not Aphrodite, who radiated smugness as she cradled the apple in her spiteful little hand. You didn't tell him Helen already has a husband, Hera murmured. She preferred to take her revenge at a leisurely pace so refusing to speak to her tormentor would serve little purpose. It didn't seem important, Aphrodite replied. Besides, how much can it matter? Paris already has a wife. Damn! (laughs) (laughs) It's so good! Oh man, it's so sassy! I know, I just love how much they bicker among each other. Like It's just so entertaining to read. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, so just in case anyone wasn't clear, Paris is the one who steals Helen away to Troy, who starts the battle. But this quote is from the middle of the book. It's still not what causes the war in the first place. Like, where did the apple come from? You need to read on to find out. (laughs) I have got two more quotes to look at. I'm going to read out the afterword next. So this is actually the last quote of the novel itself. Right. But I thought I would just give a shout out to some of my favourite chapters, which I didn't get to mention, though. There's Penthesilea, who is the Amazon queen who Achilles kills. I don't think that's in A Song of Achilles, though. No, it is. It is. Is it? She, like, comes down the beach in a chariot. It's like the montage when Patroclus is dead and he's watching Achilles. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, there's the chapter from her yeah. perspective. There is a chapter from the perspective of Agamemnon's daughter as she realises that she's not about to marry Achilles as she's been told, but she's actually about to be sacrificed by her own father. God, Agamemnon's such a dick. Well, you'll like the next one. There's a really, I've written bloody brilliant, in brackets pun intended, chapter where Agamemnon gets his deliverance handed to him and his wife Clytemnestra murders him. Oh that makes me happy. Yeah and then their daughter Electra murders her for that and that is how we get the Electra complex. Hey! (laughs) Oh yeah and then there's quite a few letters from Penelope to her husband Odysseus sprinkled throughout which suggests you may not be as patient as the poets like to say she is. Mm -hmm. She writes to him as he's on like his long voyage back to her and Circe even gets a mention in those. Oh. 
I love all um, these little intertwining connections. I know. Oh, that's funny. My next sentence is, anyway, I mentioned last week, I love how Greek mythology loves weaving <laughs> <laughs> and tapestries and threads and like, I feel like it must come from the idea that a mortal's life is determined by a cut of threads by the fates. Yeah. And this chapter is exactly about that. It's called the Morai, I think is how you pronounce it, which is the Greek term for the fates. Okay. It was the same scene every day. Clotho held the spindle. Lachesis watched her with hungry appraisal in her eyes. And Atropos sat in the darkest corner, her stubby blades almost invisible in the gloom. Clotho fed the threads through her right hand and flicked the spindle with her left. She could not remember doing anything else for as long as she had ever known. She would take a lump of fleece in one hand and twist it into a thick, rough string. Once, she might have plucked thorns or burrs from the soft fuzz, but she had long since given that up. They only scratched her hands. The thread was so fragile at this point, almost still fleece, scarcely thread at all. The fibres would pull apart with the slightest pressure, so she had to be careful. Lachesis would not forgive her if she shortened the lifespan of a single mortal through her clumsiness. It was her task to spin the thread of life, but it was for Lachesis to decide how long the thread would be. Clotho had once suggested that they swap jobs for a while so she could rest her cramping fingers, but neither of the others would consider it, which just proved what she had always known, that she had the hardest task of the three of them, and it would never change. No wonder she felt so little sympathy for the mortal lives which flitted between her fingers. The grease in the fibres kept her fingertips soft as she rubbed them across the puffy strand. Once it became a little firmer, she would hook it around the spindle and the weight pulled it longer and thinner still. Only then would Lachesis focus her attention on the thread. She used no measuring stick, only her sharp eyes. At the crucial moment, she would nod and Atropos would slash her short blade into the space between Clotho's hands. Another life measured and complete. Sometimes they misjudged. The chases did not always nod with the vigour required, and in the gloomy light, Atropos missed it. Who had that man been, Clotho tried to remember, who had lived so long after the fates botched his mortal span? She could not recall his name, only that he had been so ancient when he died, that he had looked like a pile of autumn leaves. Occasionally, Atropos sliced too low or too high and cut the thread at the wrong point. And sometimes Clotho could not get the thread to form properly. Her hands were dry, the fleece was not greasy enough, and the fibre simply fell apart before Lachesis could find anything to measure. She felt no sorrow for these souls, because if she thought at all about the consequences of her actions, she would become paralysed and never spin again. But she did prefer it if one of the others made a mistake, because that led, as often as not, to a longer life rather than a shorter one. When a thread would not form, it could only mean a grieving mother standing over a cradle, howling at the unhearing sky. That's so sad. I know. Oh, it's so it's so satisfying though. Like it's such a satisfying image to think of it just being the thread. I know. Yeah, I honestly don't have much to say about this chapter. Like, that's the whole chapter. Mm. And I do think it just speaks for itself. But I do love that you can, like, list all these Greek male heroes, but arguably the most powerful forces in mythology are these three women. Yeah, just (laughs) Um, sat about. 
Yeah, it's just such a cool concept and like I've talked about threads and weaving and looms and all that so much that I thought it was fitting to end on that one. I love that, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, as I said, I want to end my discussion of this book by reading out a bit of the afterword. Just because Haynes here shares in her own words why she chose to write about the female experience of the war. Homer's Iliad is rightly regarded as one of the great foundational texts on war and warriors, men and masculinity. But it is fascinating how we have received that text and interpreted the story it tells us. I gave an early draft of A Thousand Ships to a brainy friend for his comments and feedback. He was funny and helpful and kind and only occasionally crossed with me for not being more like H. Ryder Haggard. But he questioned the book's basic premise, that the women who survive or don't survive a war are equally as heroic as their menfolk. The men go and fight, the women don't, was his essential argument. Except that women do fight, not Nice Penthesilea and her Amazons, even if the poems heralding their great deeds have been lost. And men don't always. Achilles doesn't fight until book 18 of the 24-book Iliad. He spends the first 17 books arguing, sulking, asking his mother for help, sulking some more, letting his friend fight in his stead, offering advice and refusing apologies. But not fighting. In other words, he spends almost three quarters of the poem in a quasi-domestic setting, away from the battlefield. Yet we never question that he is a hero. Even when he isn't fighting, his status as a warrior is never in doubt. I hope that at the end of this book, my attempts to write an epic, readers might feel that heroism is something that can reside in all of us, particularly if circumstances push it to the fore. It doesn't belong to men, any more than the tragic consequences of war belong to women. Survivors, victims, perpetrators. These roles are not always separate. People can be wounded and wounding at the same time or at different times in the same life. I don't really have much to say to that because she's just pretty much cracked it, hasn't she? She's just nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I think in this book she's captured the tone of, like, as she says, women being wounded and wounding at the same time. And in the same life. Oh, and she has showed us like the terrible experiences of so many women, but that hasn't stopped her from talking about horrific stuff that they've done as well. When you're reading it, you don't just feel like anger or pity for them. Sometimes you're cheering them on. Sometimes you're hurting for them. Sometimes like you're laughing. Women are more than just the bad experiences that they have. And I think Haynes has captured that. And... I still feel like I've not said that thought as eloquently as I would like, but I, I hope you guys get what I mean. Women are not just the bad things that happen to them is like maybe one of the most eloquent things that you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, a beautiful you. thing to say. But yeah, I just I just wanted to end by doing a bit of a sum up of my thoughts on myth as a whole. It's something I've always been fascinated with without really knowing it, I suppose. Like there's got to be a reason why Hercules is been my favorite Disney film since I was like five (laughs) and yeah it's got a lot to do with like the plot of Greek myths I love all the creepy dark stuff with all the twists and I love romance and I love plots about like fighting destiny and I love like breaking my own heart (laughs) over like epic tragedies but as well I just love how it operates like I love how myth works I love how it's so concerned with storytelling and imagery that really sticks with you Mm. and 
as we've mentioned when we talk about myth and folklore, it's a lot about telling an already known story, one that's been passed down, but in a way that fits your contemporary setting. Yeah. And I think that's why, like, the Song of Achilles, Circe, A Thousand Ships, like, why they all work. They are fantastical, they are epics, and they use the same language and tone which the foundational texts do, but they also have so many parts to them which we can still relate to, and that's why they stick. So allegory is timeless, basically, and I just find that fascinating. Definitely, and fascinating and satisfying. Yeah, yeah, definitely, that's a good word. And yeah, I've loved being able to talk about Greek mythology at length like this, and I definitely will again in the future. I've got books on my like to-be-read pile that are in that genre, but just wanted to say I'm very grateful that we started doing this because it's given me a space to talk about a real passion of mine that... I don't get to talk about like at uni because it's not my research subject yeah and obviously I've liked every episode we've done of this podcast but these three have been really special so I hope everyone else has enjoyed them as much as I have <laughs> well I've enjoyed it if nothing else <laughs> I like that's so funny that you said that because yesterday I literally sent a text I was like finishing off stuff that I was gonna say for this episode mm-hmm. and I sent a text being like I love this podcast because I would bore so many people in so many pubs <laughs> talking about these things. And I don't get to talk about half of the things that I talk about on here. But yeah. this is literally what it's for. And it's just so yeah. fun. So I'm glad that you got to talk about Greek myths at length. And I feel smarter Oh, <laughs> for having heard it. I will take that as a very good compliment. <laughs> Time for your infatuation. As our listeners know, or, well, like, you should know, because if you've been paying attention, <laughs> God, in this mini-series, Emily was taking care of the myth, and I'm talking about folklore, the concept, and the Taylor Swift album. Obviously, like, you'll know from all my previous gushing that the whole album embodies the spirit of folklore, with the sort of magical, word-of-mouth, timeless storytelling that you were just talking about, in various ways. But what I wanted to do today was just concentrate on one song that I think really epitomises it perfectly, almost like a mission statement to the title, Folklore. Okay. And it's funny that you were talking about the weaving and the fates as your sort of sign-off, because the song I'm going to talk about is called Invisible String. And it's a very, like, plucky, romantic, like, happy little love song on the album, it's one of the happier songs on the album, but it's all, <laughs> it is about fate. What I wanted to do, just seeing as it is a special episode, is I was going to do a really like literary, in-depth, close reading of this song. Okay. I'm going to explain the established kind of historic folklore that it draws on, and then I want to explore how that weaves into Taylor Swift's own back catalogue to create a new kind of like meta folklore. Okay. Okay. So now that <laughs> now that I've given you my academic introduction, <laughs> let's let's go. So the hook of this song, as the title would suggest, is the idea of an invisible string of fate that ties two people together. The refrain at the end of every chorus is really simple. It just goes, and isn't it just so pretty to think? All along, there was some invisible string tying you to me. Oh, I know, it's nice, eh? 
Now, before I got into the song itself, I thought it would be fun to have a look at this myth in general, because obviously the idea of an invisible string connecting people isn't new. We've seen it in Tapestry and the Threads of Fate in your Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. We hear it all the time in just the way that we describe love in English. Like, people will describe it as feeling tied or, like, bound to someone Mm -hmm. else. Like, people talk about marriage as binding... Um, to another person and like the opposite like a breakup can make you feel untethered like that like that idea is really prevalent in our language in the way that we process romantic love yeah I always think about in Jane Eyre although I don't you've not read Jane Eyre have you no but we we pretend that's not true because I have an English degree but carry on (laughs) but Rochester has a line to Jane where he's like I, I'm gonna butcher it, but he basically says, like, I feel like there's a string tied to my rib cage and your rib cage, and we're like being pulled together. And that's like his big romantic confession to her. <laughs> I love that. Well, yeah, the um, it's everywhere in love stories, and probably yeah. the most like famous and like literal iteration of that idea is in the East Asian myth of the red thread of fate. Yeah, that's how I know it. Yeah, Yeah, that's how I know it too. So I was going to just talk about that for a minute because although probably a lot of people have heard it, I really like it, so I thought I'd tell it. (laughs) So the red thread of fate comes from Chinese mythology and the story goes that there is an invisible red cord around your finger connecting you to the finger of your true love. And the deity in charge of the red thread is an old lunar matchmaker god. See, got the the moon in there because we we love that. I'm going to probably butcher this pronunciation, but it's Yu Zhao Lao, who is in charge of marriages. In the original Chinese myth, it's tied around both parties' ankles, which I think is a bit funny. While, while in Japanese culture, it's from the man's thumb to the woman's pinky. And in Korean culture, red thread is both pinkies. So, yeah, sorry guys. I am currently getting a new roof, so if, you can, if you've been able to hear drilling or hammering at any point, or from now throughout this episode, I'm really sorry about it, but I can't keep muting myself. It's, <laughs> it's exhausting, so we tried, okay? We'll, we'll try and cut out the worst of it, but you just might hear a little bit of it. <laughs> okay. So anyway back, anyway, back to the Red Thread of Fate. In Korean culture, it's round both pinkies, and a fun fact that I I went and researched on this is that your pinky and your like ring finger of your left hand, so like your wedding finger, are both connected to your heart via your ulnar artery, or your Ooh. venous amoris, Ooh. which vein of love. It's literally the end point of your heart flow, which is why people pinky promise. Oh. Oh, I never knew that. No, neither did I. But well, that yeah. makes so much sense. Oh, and like the the like artery is like an extension of the red thread. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, okay. that that was like a fun thing that I learned, and I thought that was really cool. Anyway, <laughs> so that's the red thread is nowadays commonly depicted as being from pinky to pinky in across all modern retellings. And it's red not just because of the the blood, but also because red symbolises good fortune in Chinese culture. That is important and relevant, bear that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) So, there's loads and loads of stories in East Asian mythology about the red thread of fate. While we're here, I just thought, 
last episode we'll share one <laughs> um about the red thread because it's really dark and i think that you'd like it okay so the story goes walking home one night a young boy sees an old man yu Zhao lao standing beneath the moonlight the man explains to the boy that he is attached to his destined wife by a red thread yu Zhao lao shows the boy the young girl who's destined to be his wife being young and having no interest in having a wife the boy picks up a rock and throws it at the girl, running away. Many years later, when the boy has grown into a young man, his parents arrange a wedding for him. On the night of his wedding, his wife waits for him in their bedroom with the traditional veil covering her face. Raising it, the man is delighted to find that his wife is one of the great beauties of his village. However, she wears an adornment on her eyebrow. He asks her why she wears it, and she responds that when she was a young girl, a boy threw a rock at her that struck her, leaving a scar on her eyebrow. She self-consciously wears the adornment to cover it up. The woman is in fact the same girl connected to the man by the red thread shown to him by Yu Zhao Lao back in his childhood, showing that they were connected by the red thread of fate. <laughs> Which, like, is kind of sweet, but also just, like, yeah, it's supposed to be really romantic, and it's just like, yeah, you hit her with a rock. <laughs> Which, not ideal. Yeah. I like all the ones where it's, like, they have, they're married to someone, but their, like, thread is connected to, like, someone else. Oh, yeah. that's. I've heard a few of those. There was one, actually, I didn't take it all down just because it was really dark, but it's, like, this guy, He's he's shown the girl when he's young as well and he, she's poor and he's like no I don't want to marry her so he orders to have her killed but like they don't kill her they just maim her and then he ends up married to Ooh. this woman who's like maimed and then he breaks down because he realises like he remembers that he ordered it to happen it's so dark oh my but yeah God. anyway <laughs> we're getting we're getting way <laughs> down a, a rabbit hole here <laughs> So the crux of this piece of folklore is that there's two people connected by a red thread. They're destined lovers regardless of place, time or circumstance. And importantly, the magical cord may stretch or tangle but never break. So it's similar to the concept of a soulmate. And already all of these connotations and this mythic history is stacked up behind that title, Invisible String, for me. Which is why I wanted to go into a little deep dive into that because the minute I saw that <laughs> title I was just like, oh, the red thread of fate. Yeah. Turning now to the song itself, with all that in mind there are just some really beautiful moments of craft happening in the, in the, in the track so the first thing that I wanted to talk about before I even got to the lyrics is the music. I don't think I've played you this song you've maybe heard it. I don't think so but if, if you listen to this song not an ad but if anyone listens to this song, <laughs> you'll hear that it's like this finger-picked guitar riff all the way through that's very like hypnotic and really clear and really lovely. And it runs the whole way through the track. And I love this instrumental for three reasons. So, firstly, it centres on the guitar and it's picking and it's not strumming. So it's really playing up the sound of the individual strings of the instrument, which is very on theme, mm-hmm. which I enjoy. Secondly, the timing of the riff, it sort of goes like doom, do do doom, do do doom, do do doom, do do. So it has like lots of little notes with one longer one in the middle. And I'm not, I'm not like a musicologist, mm-hmm. so I can't tell you what that technique is called. But to me, it sounds like <laughs> weaving, 
Like, it sounds like knitting, mm. where that long note is, like, the pulling through before you begin again. Yeah. Like, this just brings a lot of atmosphere and, like, really deliberate crafting those, like, discreet, repetitive notes. And thirdly, although this is kind of related to the first point, in playing up the guitar, it's drawing attention back to the first instrument that Taylor Swift ever played before she moved to, like, pianos and synths and stuff. It was just her and her guitar. So already, mm-hmm. just with the music, you have that idea of, like, a cyclical story, a return to, like, youth, like, a timelessness. All these ideas that are caught up in the, the Red Thread story as well. And I just think that sets mm-hmm. the stage really well for what she goes on to do lyrically. This is one of the few songs on this album that's openly autobiographical. I spoke in part one about how this album was a move away from confessional writing for her and how well that worked. But I think part of the effect of that is that she's been able to write explicitly about her own life on the album with like a sense of remove, if that makes sense. Like as if it's just another Mm -hmm. story. So we see that here. The first verse of the song goes... Green was the colour of the grass where I used to read in Centennial Park. I used to think I would meet somebody there. Teal was the colour of your shirt when you were 16 at the yoghurt shop. You used to work there to make a little money. So we've got a couple of things happening here, right? We've got a focus on colour through the repetitive phrase, like green was the colour of, teal was the colour of. And to me, that just immediately recalls the red thread myth, because it's a song that's called Invisible Mm -hmm. String. So that's just floating at the back of our minds but these colours aren't matching they're similar they're green and teal but they're not the same so if you were being generous you could call it a tenuous connection but like really you would just call it a reach Like it's just a bit of a reach Mm -hmm. to go like oh my god when I was when I was there the grass that was green and like when you you (laughs) were that age you were wearing a shirt that was almost green so you know But the important thing about this verse is it's the past. There's a repetition of you used to, I used to. And as we saw from the story of the young boy throwing the rock, part of the red thread myth's mechanics is that the thread's only revealed when the lovers meet. So before that, it's not obvious. None of the connections are obvious. Mm -hmm. So I think that that word choice of green versus teal shows an awareness already of the myth that she's working from. But also a more modern like prevailing feeling that love makes everything even like the slightest coincidence feel fated in hindsight yeah yeah that's what happens when people fall in love they think that everything was meant even when it's Mm -hmm. done so i think that (laughs) idea is emphasized in the pre-chorus that follows that verse which goes time curious time gave me no compasses gave me no signs were there clues i didn't see but then she goes to that main refrain And isn't it just so pretty to think all along there was some invisible string tying you to me? So I especially Mm. like that detail of isn't it pretty to think? Because it's not saying this is real, I believe in fate. But it's acknowledging like, I love you enough that I can think of this pretty story even though it's just a story. Yeah, it's that very like hopeless romantic kind of vibe. I know this is dumb, but I think it's like, I'm going to believe in it anyway. Which I think to me... Sounds like me. <laughs> Which I don't know, I think like, maybe that's even more romantic than saying, oh, it was clearly men. I don't know. Yeah. It, it makes my heart warm. The second verse is where the song really kicks into high gear for me, obviously, because we know that I love a second verse. 
because that's where it starts to do the very typical Taylor Swift thing, where it becomes self-aware that it's a Taylor Swift song and very, like, self-mythologising. So that verse goes, Bad was the blood in the song in the cab on your first trip to LA. You ate at my favourite spot for dinner. Bold was the waitress on her three-year trip having lunch down by the lakes. She said I looked like an American singer. Yes, it's a very funny verse. I enjoy it a lot. So for anyone that doesn't know, which is probably most people that have a life, in her two th- <laughs> in her 2014 <laughs> album, 1989, where she made her move to pop, Taylor Swift had a single called Bad Blood, which was played fucking everywhere, right? It was huge. It made yeah. her the first person to have her own custom apple emoji with a band-aid over a bullet hole. Oh. Um, which is a line from the song. Fun fact. Yeah, it was a big song. And so here we have this really eerie moment where she's realising that the person she's with knew her through her music before she knew him. Then we also have this love happening in LA and Hollywood where there's lots of scrutiny and spotlight. But then she does this really gorgeous thing where she takes the action of the verse, you ate at my favourite spot for dinner, and uses it to show a parallel and a passage of time to this second dinner that they're having together on their three-year trip and she's only tentatively recognized by the waitress there you know like she said i looked like an american Mm. singer so again she's using like Mm -hmm. this tenuous connection of like these are two places that we both ate dinner but now we've aggregated like actual concrete moments where the lives of these two people have intersected both before they were together and when they're together and it's because of her fame so you could argue mm-hmm. that here the invisible string becomes like the music itself mm-hmm. and on that kind of train of thought a really satisfying addition is that The Lakes, having launched down by The Lakes, is the name of the final track on this album Folklore. Oh, so it's like yeah. she started with Bad Blood and ended with The Lakes which I just think is really cool. <laughs> so then we have another chorus. Isn't it pretty to think there was some invisible string? And that takes us to the bridge. A string that pulled me out of all the wrong arms right into that dive bar. Something wrapped all my past mistakes in barbed wire. Chains around my demons, wool to brave the seasons. One single thread of gold tied me to you. This, for someone who has followed her work for years, is really lyrically satisfying. And let me tell you why. <laughs> because because this is, okay. like, for me, I'd say this is where the idea of actual folklore, i.e. the red thread and, like, myths that are established, and, like, her personal lore are woven together. Because this is a bridge that is mm-hmm. built out of her whole back catalogue. Okay, so... Out of all the wrong arms, right into that dive bar, is recalling the first line of a single called Delicate, which was on her Reputation album. And the first line of that song is Dive Bar on the East Side, where you at? We have that parallel. And in the music video for that song, Taylor receives a magical golden note, which turns her, wait for it, invisible. The only person who can see her is the lover that she meets at the end of the video, in a dive bar. Okay. Then we've got the imagery of barbed wire and chains, um, which also recall her music videos for past singles. Out of the Woods from 1989 and Look What You Made Me Do from Reputation, respectively, where she's seen wrapped first in spiny thorns and then in a big giant metal cage. These are just image 
things, and it would be for people that had watched the music videos. But still a nice little Easter egg. Then we have Mm -hmm. Wool to Brave the Seasons, which is like one of my favourite little details in this song. Because one of Taylor Swift's most critically acclaimed songs, it's never a single, but it's a song called All Too Well. It's my favourite song ever. (laughs) And the central (laughs) image in the song is a scarf that an ex has kept as a memory of her. The line is, you keep my old scarf from that very first week because it reminds you of innocence and it smells like me. Which, oh, such a good line. (laughs) And the song is also, like, I can't get into explaining, but it's really associated with autumn. So, will to brave the seasons. Scarf. Mm -hmm. So, the seasons of change, the seasons of heartache that she went through on all her breakup albums is what I'm taking from that. And this song, All Too Well, also happens to be on her album, Red. Stay with me. We're almost there. (laughs) In the liner notes for Red, which is the breakup album to end all breakup albums, she says, My experiences in love have taught me difficult lessons, especially my experiences with crazy love. The Red relationships. The ones that went from zero to 100 miles per hour, then hit a wall and exploded. And it was awful and ridiculous and desperate and thrilling. And when the dust settled, it was something I'd never take back. Because there's something to be said for being young and needing someone so badly, you jump in headfirst without looking. And there's something to be learned from waiting all day for a train that's never coming. And there's something to be proud of about moving on and realising that real love shines golden like starlight and doesn't fade or spontaneously combust. Maybe I'll write a whole album about that kind of love if I ever find it. But this album is about the other kinds of love that I've recently fallen in and out of. Love that was treacherous, sad, beautiful and tragic. But most of all, this record is about love that was red. If we're talking about sort of Taylor Swift mythology, red is already taken, right? Red is is not what you Mm -hmm. aim for. Gold is what you aim for. That's what, like, 23-year-old Taylor Swift imagined the soulmate kind of love to be. Real love shines yeah. golden like starlight. And then in her... <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Lloyd. Because there's someone at the door. <laughs> and then in her 2019 album, Lover last year, which was about exactly that kind of love, the the big soulmate kind of love, and about the same guy mm-hmm. that Invisible String is about. The ending track, Daylight, has a lyric that says, I once believed love would be burning red, but it's golden like daylight. So, we have a very established lyrical world where red is one kind of love, gold is another mm-hmm. kind of love, but she also has this like thread metaphor and this idea of invisibility and everything all happening in her back catalogue. In this bridge of invisible string, that last line, one single thread of gold tied me to you, isn't just arbitrarily messing with the red th- thread of fate story. It's weaving that story into the ones that she's already told with the previous albums. And we know that because the song is referencing her other music in a way that's telling us, like, I can see how all these stories connect now. She's telling us, like, I've got my red thread, but I have to tell you it's gold so that you'll know that it was the real love that I was hoping for all along. 
which is just yeah. so satisfying. It just makes me so happy. <laughs> I'm genuinely happy for her, but also like it's just a really good way to signal that storytelling through your own previous work. I don't know. I like it. Yeah. But as if that's not like a satisfying ending in itself, Taylor, ever the storyteller, uses the last verse mm-hmm. of the song to tie up the story of this particular track, Invisible String, so that it still stands on its own rather than just like houses a load of references. So the uh-huh. last verse goes Cold was the steel of my axe to grind for the boys who broke my heart. Again, referencing all our confessional breakups. Now I send their babies presents. Gold, gold was the colour of the leaves when I showed you around Centennial Park. Hell was the journey, but it brought me heaven. And then the pre chorus goes Time, wondrous time, gave me the blues and then purple pink skies, and it's cool, baby, with me. And isn't it just so pretty to think all along there was some invisible string tying you to me? So now at the level of like present, current narrative that's unfolding through this song, even if you haven't heard any of the others, we have this moment of like fate mm-hmm. because we're back where we started at Centennial Park, only now they're together. Yeah. And after all of her confessional breakup albums, all of the blues before folklore, we got her confessional loved up album lover which you know from the album cover is purple pink skies oh it makes me so happy (laughs) and so that pre-chorus as well has changed from were there clues i didn't see all the way to it's cool baby with me and to me that Mm -hmm. like encompasses what everyone really talks about when they talk about fate because it's like an acceptance of allowing things to happen and believing that it's going to be all right and believing that one day you'll look back and be cool with it all. And I personally don't believe in fate, but I believe in getting to a place in your life where you're like happy enough to turn around and make sense of everything that came before and grateful that it all happened because Mm -hmm. of where it led you. And I think that's the beauty for me of the red thread of fate myth. And I think that idea shines through really strongly on this track because the pattern is revealed at the end which makes it like a really good like homage to the folklore that it's referencing but it's also like a living example of folklore in the making i think it's a really expertly crafted song and i'm so impressed with it and it's also just really 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 sweet to listen to (laughs) and that that was my literary analysis of invisible string oh i liked that i want to say like because i'm just I'm not really into Taylor Swift. Like, it's just not the kind of music I listen to. But I th- I found these episodes so interesting because I feel like even if you don't listen to her, like, the the way you're, you're, you're like, giving us the information <laughs> that we need to know. And I don't know, I just find it fascinating how, like, she's so self-aware. Yeah. I can't think of many artists who are as self-referential as her. So it's definitely an interesting subject to talk about, even if you're not really a fan of her music. We've talked about this before, where I'm just obsessed with the idea of self-mythologising in general. Like, when people give themselves, like, brands. I think that's insane. And also just, like, (laughs) we've talked about this because we both studied old Hollywood. The idea that, like, a place can say, I'm this amazing, magical place, and just become this amazing, magical place in cultural mm-hmm. imagination. Yeah. Because it says it is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like this like cannibalistic, like cyclical self mythologizing. It's just so cool. 
And I feel like that's what she does in her musical world building on a smaller scale. Is like, she takes yeah. what other people have said about her, flips it to say it about herself, and then it doesn't really matter if it's true or not, because that's what she's working with. Oh, it's just... Yeah, yeah. Oh, it blows my mind, man. Oh, I can't believe we're finished. Our, yeah. Well, I know we've not finished the episodes, but we finished our, our method folklore section. I know, section. I'm so proud. I was, I was genuinely so <laughs> buzzing writing that bit last night. I, like, banged out yeah. 3,000 words about that song and was like... <gasps> <laughs> How's writing been for you this week? It has been alright. I actually sent some of it to you, which is very scary. I'm so excited. You'll you'll be the first person to to read some of it. <laughs> I'm genuinely honoured. I was gonna say that in like a sarcastic tone, but like it's not sarcastic. I'm very, very pleased that you're Oh <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, I look forward to hearing what you have to say about it. <laughs> So yeah, just for my my chat today, I thought I'd just Mm -hmm. give a quick tip for anyone who is stuck with writing and that is to use some writing challenges that you can like easily find online. You can type in like 30 day or even 100 day writing challenge into Google and you'll just find loads of lists. It's normally just like one word prompts and the idea is that you do one a day. So it could be like writing a little paragraph or like something more fleshed out but the whole idea is to keep you thinking keep you writing so you like get into a habit of it but admittedly I don't often use these as like a day specific writing challenge but just every now and then when I feel like I need a new idea I take a look at a word document I've got of like a 30 day writing challenge Mm. and kind of see if any of those words like spark inspiration yeah and sometimes I'll write something that goes into a novel other times it's just practice like you know just getting into the swing of things but yeah if you're ever stuck for ideas or want to challenge yourself to get into the habit of writing every day challenge like that can be a good way to kind of motivate yourself and as I said there's loads of lists online that you should be able to find one that suits you and yeah I just wanted to ask if you've ever done any writing challenges yeah I did I always try to start them like the you know like the month long like the 30 day ones I always try and do them for like poetry and I never finish them but they are really helpful. Usually what ends up happening is like I get an actually really good idea from one of them and then I'll work yeah. on that for a while and I'll I'll let the challenge go. But like that's fine, that's what it's for. But something that I really like on that note is like random word generators online. Oh yeah, I've used those before, yeah. Or like phrase generators or whatever. Because sometimes, I don't know, like I can get... We were talking a couple of weeks ago about how we often revisit the same themes or images or whatever in our writing and how that's totally fine and it's great to explore all the different facets of something but I can get a bit stuck Mm. in a theme or an image and sometimes I need just like an external force to be like you have to use this word that you would never use and it's well it's kind of like we've talked about before like studying creative writing like quite often that's what happens in class is you just get like a one word prompt or or a sentence yeah. or whatever and you have to write it so it's a good practice to get into definitely and I think like as much as it can be a bit of a ball ache to like make yourself stick to any sort of rule or like do a challenge mm-hmm. it like I always go into it being really like oh I can't be bothered like I just because I, I, you're always creatively blocked when you go to these challenges right yeah. so I was like 
already pissed off but then the minute that it like breaks through and you you get an idea it's yeah. like it just cures all your writer's block so yeah i i completely endorse your tip because it's a great one i think as well like sometimes you, you don't even need to use the word it can just spark an idea like so i had one that like the the prompt was sleep and i didn't talk about sleep but i ended up talking about someone's dream like even like little things like mm. that but yeah, yeah it's just uh just an interesting way to get some motivation <laughs> but yeah how is your writing been yeah, well, I'm I'm proud to say I actually wrote something this week. Yay! <laughs> For the first time in ages, I I felt like I was really suffering from like creative constipation. Yeah. Where I felt like I'd, I I had all these ideas, but like I just wasn't sitting down and writing them. I just wasn't doing it. But the other day in the shower, I started getting all these like fully completed lines in my head Mm -hmm. so I came out and spent like an hour and a half just playing around and ended up with like a rough draft of a new piece so I thought I'd just like share the process of that a little bit since it was fresh. The piece that I wrote is a poem and it is actually shock inspired by a line from folklore so it's from a song that I haven't discussed in my analysis because I love it too much and I don't want to analyse it. (laughs) It's a song called Peace and I, I don't know, man, it does it does things to me. It's, it's a love song, but it's sad because it's basically listing all the things that you can give to someone else, like all the virtues that you can share with someone. But the refrain is, would it be enough if I could never give you peace? Like the song was in my head and I ended up just really like thinking about the question because in my own life, as you'll have heard throughout this episode, we have had... A lot of work and people and noise going on in this house for a couple of weeks now and probably one of the most common phrases in this house right now is oh I wish I could just get a minute's peace yeah but in the song peace peace is really consistency in that song it's like an extended calm or like a quiet life like that's how she's talking about it she's Mm -hmm. saying like would it be enough if I could never give you a quiet life And so that got me thinking about how the phrase a minute's peace is a bit oxymoronic because like, well, for me anyway, a minute's peace isn't peace. It's just respite from chaos, which is different. Like, and then I got thinking about how like, okay, maybe peace is something a bit deeper, something that takes a bit longer because it requires the dust to actually be settled, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like this song was in my head and I was thinking about this and... Then I was thinking about the roof and how if it rained while the roof was off, that would be really bad. And how even if it's not raining right at that moment, the threat of it means that you can't rest until your roof's back on. And so that's what the poem's about. And it was just one of those like serendipitous moments that you get as a writer where you get like an image and a line and a concept that all like crystallise together. And it just came from like thinking a lot about what a certain concept meant to me. And then drawing on stuff that was going on. There's not really a foolproof formula on how to get inspiration, but that's how it happened for me this week. Yeah. So shower thoughts, basically, is a tip. <laughs> yeah, shower thoughts. Shower thoughts is is the key to being a writer. Yeah. So that's my writing segment. Like, it's not. I don't really know if that would help anyone but me, but. That's, yeah. that's what I've got. <laughs> well, I think it's still just interesting to hear how you come up with ideas.
what's your quickfire favourite this week, Emily? My quickfire favourite is a podcast. It Ooh. is called Beach to Sandu, Water to Wet. And one of the hosts is Christine Schieffer, who is also the host of And That's Why We Drink, which we all know ah. is like my favourite podcast. And she hosts Beach to Sandu with her brother, Alexander. And it's so funny. The premise <laughs> is that they do dramatic readings of like normally one star reviews. Oh. <laughs> so each episode has a theme. So like some I've already listened to are bridal shops in Houston or... <laughs> Waffle Houses in Atlanta. They also set each other challenges to find reviews with certain, like a certain word or feature in them. So, <laughs> for example, Alexander challenged Christine to find a review about air fresheners that mentioned a dead body. Okay. <laughs> and he just, the one I just listened to, he challenged her to find a McDonald's review that mentioned sex. I feel like that would not be as difficult as you would hope. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's just really funny. It's such a fun idea for a podcast. And there's loads of episodes and I've only listened to like 10. But it's just a good one to put on when you want a laugh. So yeah, that's my quick fire favourite. <laughs> I actually might listen to that. I think you know you'd like it. The reason that I struggle with podcasts, she says, ironically, <laughs> is like, I struggle when people are chatting and I'm doing something else and I have to like keep in mind what they're saying while I'm Mm. doing my own thing but that like little like comedy podcasts are different because it's just banner yeah it's just funny that appeals (laughs) to me I also really like the title yeah it's so funny their theme song is very good as well it's like very jazzy I like it (laughs) what is your quickfire favorite my quickfire favorite is something that you already know about but I feel compelled to say it's my favorite thing this week because it because it really cheered me up npr tiny desk concerts Mm -hmm. i've been for some reason on a binge of these (laughs) this week so for anyone that doesn't know it's literally like artists will go to this little tiny office there's a small desk they do a set it's usually like three or four songs sometimes it's a little bit longer Mm -hmm. but not often and the videos range from like 10 minutes if the artist literally comes on and sings and does nothing else to like half an hour if they want to have a bit of banter and whatever Mm -hmm. yeah I've been watching lots of them and I was trying to figure out like why am I so addicted to these I think it's a like the cute small setting it's just like aesthetically pleasing yeah but also one of my favorite things to do is to go to gigs and over lockdown obviously we haven't been able to do that and Tiny Desk Concert doesn't pretend to have the atmosphere of like a big stadium concert because something that kind of depresses me is watching like concert videos when I'm in my room Mm. and it's like a big light show and there's a big massive crowd and everything (laughs) I'm like but I'm not there and I'm sad but Tiny Desk is like you it would feel the same if you were in the room as it does when you're watching on your laptop yeah it's like an intimate gig like yeah. yeah And it's, like, very low-key. And I don't know, like, it just... I would recommend it for anyone that's sort of struggling with a bit of pandemic fatigue. I'm getting a bit bored now of not being able to go out and do stuff. Mm. But it's, like, a nice thing that makes you feel, like, close to the artists. And sometimes they do a little bit of talking and it's... Yeah, it's just yeah. a nice thing. <laughs> it's comforting. Nice. I need to watch the 1975 one. I've not seen that oh, one. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I was watching the Hosier one and the Phoebe mm. Bridgers one. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> nice. 
have you got a rant for us this week? I have a rant, but again, I've I don't know what's happened to me, Emily. I've become a positive person. Oh so no. I know. Like it's really difficult for this rant segment when I'm <laughs> trying not to be raging all the time. <laughs> but I'm like successfully managing my anger and it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> But I have a rant of sorts. Okay. So I'm going to call it citrus. Okay. So yesterday I was having a really bad day and I put a post up on Instagram with a picture of a clementine peel. Mm -hmm. Basically I was just moaning, being like, I've had a shit day. But I was saying in the post that somehow clementines or like oranges or satsumas or whatever like small citrus you prefer make me feel very human. And the eating it cheered me up. And, like, that was it. That was the extent of the post. Uh Uh-huh, I saw that. And it got... Yeah. And it got so much engagement. Oh, really? So much more, like, feedback than I expected. Loads of people replied to this story, more than, like, replied to any stories of anything else, (laughs) being like, yes, I feel this. Like, I really, really (laughs) deeply agree with you. And I had this mad array of conversations about citrus fruit and how it can be at once very, like, wholesome and summery, but there's also something, like, weirdly sexual about it because it's, like, juicy and made to be shared, right? Mm. This is things that that I was talking about. (laughs) Um, And then also, like, how it evokes some sort of, like, primal feeling because we eat it the exact same way it comes off the tree. There's no need to, like, augment it in any way. One of our friends, Rebecca, said that she'd read somewhere that primal human desire is to stand in the shower and just fucking chow down on an orange like it's the heart of your cave rival and let the juices flow. (laughs) Which, by the way, is maybe one of the most metal texts that I've ever been sent. And weirdly, someone else replied saying just, eat one in the shower, you coward. (laughs) That's so funny. So, like, clearly this is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was a thing. No, and I'm just so fascinated by how oranges and, like, their tiny cousins have <laughs> the ability to evoke this really visceral reaction in so many people. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. I think it's delightful. <laughs> so, basically, in celebration of the humble citrus, I thought that instead of doing an angry rant i'd share a really short really happy poem okay it's by wendy cope and it's called the orange at lunchtime i bought a huge orange the size of it made us all laugh i peeled it and shared it with robert and dave they got quarters and i had a half and that orange it made me so happy as ordinary things often do just lately the shopping a walk in the park this is peace and contentment It's new. The rest of the day was quite easy. I did all the jobs on my list and enjoyed them and had some time over. I love you. I'm glad I exist. Aww, that's so nice. It's so lovely. It's one of my favourite poems ever and I just, yeah, I had all these conversations about Clementines and I thought, Wendy Cope gets it. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Do you have an insight for us this week, Emily? I do. So you actually sent me (laughs) the insight this week. (laughs) But it's a really good one, so I'm going to share it. So this is an article written by Penguin, 
and it's what books to read for your zodiac sign amazing so i'm gonna read ours out and i'll just read yours first so this is taurus practical capable competitive and usually fairly reliable in a crisis those born under taurus are considered earthy with a tendency to lust in fact, a wise, if slightly outmoded, star seeker once told me that Taurian men were like bulls, only happy when they had plenty of cows around. So why not buy them Hemingway? The descriptions <laughs> of wine, food, poor heating, and F. Scott Fitzgerald's genital insecurity in Paris are nothing if not earthy after all. Most likely reading habit. Don't be surprised if they lend your only copy of a particularly beloved paperback to a stranger on a train given as an act of spontaneous flirtation. They are ruled by Venus, you know. I love that. <laughs> I completely could see myself doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and I do really like F. Scott Fitzgerald. I know. <laughs> That's so funny. I love that line, uh, Torian men are like bills, because I know a lot of Torian men and... <laughs> That is true. <laughs> See, I don't know a lot of men that are that are Taurus. Do I? Do we? Well, my ex was Taurus. Oh. <laughs> yep. Okay. I see it. We get yep. it. <laughs> Mo- moving on. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is the Pisces one. A slippery fish, the Pisces. This last water sign in the chart is thought of as emotional, generous, perhaps a tad gullible. They are said to be led by Neptune and all the instinctual artistic associations that comes with. Perhaps the most stereotypical embodiment of Pisces in books is Jane Eyre herself. While a good genre for Pisces is something escapist, be that historical or science fiction. Most likely a reading habit, feeling truly bereft once a good novel comes to an end and they have to say goodnight to the characters that have become their friends. Oh, <laughs> It's so true. <laughs> Yeah, Emily likes to like take a full evening to grieve once she's finished a book, even if no one died. Yeah, it takes me a while to get over it. I normally have to take a night off reading, like have like a day break in between. Yeah, and you like have to tell me about it. You oh yeah, like there's this book and I've finished it now, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> also, the Jane Eyre thing. The Jane Eyre thing. I know that's so funny because I mentioned Jane Eyre earlier. I totally, totally forgot that was in this. How many copies of Jane Eyre do you think there are in our flat? I don't know. Do you have a copy? I have one. I think I might only have one. Actually, I don't know if I have. Do you? I don't know if I have two. I think I only have the one. I feel like I've seen it cutting about, but it's maybe just that you have it out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I do go back and read it a lot. I also did my dissertation on it, so I feel like it was just always yeah around. <laughs> floating around yeah (laughs) i think i only have one copy that could i don't know i can't remember i've got a really nice copy and part of me's thinking now maybe i had a second one so i could write in it Mm, maybe that's what i'm possibly i might have to who knows but anyway yeah I, i enjoyed that i thought that was very accurate it was a fun thing thanks penguin yeah thank you for saying that i get so easily attached to characters like it's just it's a really it's a problem (laughs) I enjoyed in mine as well the like we just love decadent description. Yeah, yeah. Because like I'm so I thought immediately about like Oscar Wilde mm, and how yeah. I have like I have like a whole shelf of Oscar Wilde and I'm just always like I want to see how he describes plates <laughs> <laughs> and like beds yeah. and like 
furniture. I actually meant to look through the list and see if they suggested Oscar Wilde for anyone. Because I wonder who, it maybe like a Sagittarius or something, they're quite bougie, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> or a Leo. Or mm, maybe a they're Leo. They're quite flamboyant, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, that's true. Anyway. Well, <laughs> that was a tangent. <laughs> Okay, well, I have gathered the question for us this week, and I can't believe that we haven't had this one before, actually. Okay. The question is, which fictional character reminds you of the other? Oh, that's hard. I know. I don't know. Do you have an answer already, or...? I find it quite difficult, because, obviously, you're a whole person that I know. (laughs) Yeah. So there's there's bits of characters that I go like, nah, that doesn't really fit, but I think... There's a few for you, so like okay. TV wise and just like your general vibe. Okay. We all know that you're Sabrina from the Chilling Adventures <laughs> of Sabrina. <laughs> I think that our friend Hamza would very much agree with that yeah. because he always sends us memes being like, "This is Emily." <laughs> so she really reminds me of you. Probably, like you're gonna be offended because you're gonna be like, "You're just saying I'm boring. I'm not." Oh. But like Beth from Little Women. Oh, really yeah. reminds me of you. Yeah. But it's only because she like loves her piano and she just like <laughs> she just like does everything for everyone to like make the place nice. And I feel like that's yeah. what you do. Yeah, I like I wish I was like a like an Amy, but I'm actually a Beth. But it's because your like overwhelming feature I think is like empathy and kindness, which is a good thing. It's just okay. that she dies, which is a bit shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I suppose on that note, I do think you have a bit of Joe in you. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from Little Women. I'd agree with that. Let me try and think of like another one. Is there any like duos that we always see and we're like, that's us? I feel like there is, but I actually can't think of I any. I can't think of any right now, but I feel like there definitely is. It's funny, actually, I was watching Practical Magic, which I know you've not seen. It's Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. Or like their their sisters, their witches, and um, right. I always like so relate to Sandra Bullock's character because she's like this total hopeless romantic. Like she like loves her family. She's like tries to stay out of trouble and all this. Mm. And Nicole Kidman is like the opposite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like there's a little bit of a, a little bit of that. The plot of the the film is like Nicole Kidman gets into a bit of trouble. Sandra Bullock has to go and help her and then <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm, see- I'm seeing the pattern but, uh, but Sandra Bullock finds you know love in the way so like <laughs> yeah I can see that I can see yeah. me being the Nicole Kidman to yeah. your Sandra Bullock <laughs> but I feel like I don't know if this is a insult or not again because I think she has a lot of flaws but you've got a bit of Lorelai Gilmore in you you know you've got like her her sort of like more energetic passionate side do you know that's so funny because i was literally thinking gilmore girls and i was like i feel like i'm a bit of a paris oh paris oh I forgot about paris yeah that's more accurate <laughs> but yeah i'll take like lorelei's probably more complimentary so yeah. i'll take that but that's only because you're you're a beth <laughs> yeah but I'm, let's uh, just call it what it is i'm a paris yeah. um there's got to be there's definitely been like something that we watched where there was like a 
dynamic duo and we're like that so us I know. and I can't I, I can't think what it is right now yeah. but it's gonna really bug me was it not something quite recent yeah like that we watched together is it the two best friends from Mamma Mia oh yeah I think it might yep. have been yeah I think that's what it was yeah I'm 100% <laughs> Christine Baranski and you are 100% Julie Walters from Mamma Mia <laughs> oh yeah oh that's so funny but like the young ver- well and the old versions but I think it was the young versions wasn't it yes. where we were like oh yeah <laughs> there we are <laughs> but we like both wish we were Donna <laughs> yeah we both want to be Donna but we both know we're not <laughs> oh that's funny oh that's so funny oh, well, I'm glad that we remembered that was annoying me yeah that took us a while but we got there eventually we got there you can edit out the old <laughs> So yeah, guys, hope you enjoyed our Myth and Folklore mini-series. Yeah. I feel like we should like brainstorm some other sort of themes that we can do, because that was really fun. Yeah, it was fun. I think, yeah, well, why don't we invite our wonderful listeners, if you have an yes. idea for any themes that you'd like us to cover. Yes. Oh, on that note, actually, I was thinking, just going to tell you this at the same time I tell everyone else, but I think we should do an episode on like uni and studying writing and stuff Mm. like just dedicate a whole episode to it so if anyone has any like questions like wants to know anything in particular please let us know yeah go for it i think we should do like a halloween episode though that could be quite cool 100 percent. like can we do like scary books yeah because halloween's a saturday this this year so we could do the friday episodes could be a halloween one banging <laughs> yeah anyway if you have any questions comments email us at infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com we have social media which is linked below and the infatuated mix which has all the music that we talk about and i think that is everything i think it is but yeah cool thanks for listening everyone see you next week bye bye